Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Amit Goswami. Theoretical quantum physicist Dr. Amit Goswami is a retired full professor from the University of Oregon's Department of Physics, where he served from 1968 to 1997. He is a pioneer of the new paradigm of science called Science Within Consciousness, an idea he explicated in his seminal book, The Self-Aware Universe, where he also solved the quantum measurement problem, elucidating the famous observer effect. Goswami has written several other popular books, The Visionary Visionary Window, Physics of the Soul, The Quantum Doctor, Creative Evolution, God is Not Dead, How Quantum Activism Can Save Civilization, Quantum Creativity, Think Quantum, Be Creative, Quantum Economics, Unleashing the Power of an Economics of Consciousness. In his most recent book, The Everything Answer Book, Goswami's basic premise is that quantum physics is not only the future of science, but it is also the key to understanding consciousness, death, God, psychology, and the meaning of life. In short, quantum physics offers a theory of everything. In his private life, Goswami is a practitioner of spirituality and transformation. He calls himself a quantum activist. He appeared in the film What the Bleep Do We Know? and its sequel, Down the Rabbit Hole, as well as the documentaries Dalai Lama Renaissance and the award-winning The Quantum Activist. So with that, please help me welcome Amit Goswami. Hello, how are you, Amit? Thank you, thank you. It's such a pleasure to have the opportunity to interview you today. Uh, what the Bleep Do We Know, that which I watched, of course, many years ago, was one of those kind of inspiring aha moments, as I know it was for many other people who were very new to this quantum worldview. Um, so I want to start off by talking a little bit about quantum physics more generally. And because our audience at Embodied Philosophy are mostly spiritual practitioners of various sorts, yoga teachers, yoga um, practitioners, meditation practitioners, many of our listeners will be very familiar with the reference to quantum physics, right? There's a lot of spiritual teachers today talking about mentioning quantum physics as a kind of justification for spirituality in a certain kind of way. But oftentimes it's cited, but it's not really explained what it means and why, you know, quantum physics is this this kind of wonderful scientific paradigm that really helps us understand spirituality. So I'm wondering if you wondering if you could start just by unpacking that for us. Why do spiritual teachers talk so much about quantum physics? Because quantum physics, uh, when understood properly, when interpreted properly, uh, gives you an astounding entry uh, to consciousness. Not only that, it reverses the paradigm that scientists commonly use, matter is everything. This interpretation of quantum physics, which is paradox-free, reverses that and says consciousness has to be taken to be the ground of being only then uh, these paradoxes of quantum physics that people talk about all disappear. Right. So the 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 difference, right, in the quantum worldview is what you're saying is that that rather than matter being sort of the ground of everything, which is at the end of the day ultimately a kind of dogma, correct? It is a dogma, and also don't forget, uh, spirituality cannot exist in that dogma. In that dogma, spirituality is basically imaginations yeah. that, uh, that brain somehow does. Nobody knows why the brain does all this, but 
in that model, brain, in fact, not, not really the brain, the elementary particles of matter, look at how ridiculous it is. So when we say brain, at least it makes some sense to some people. But when we really, really say what materialism is assuming, that it is really the elementary particles all the way, they are doing everything. Nothing is done by anybody else. All cause comes from elementary particles. It's not brain does this, brain does that. It's elementary particles do this, do that. And that is where um, spiritual traditions are just thrown out. Yeah. Uh, so uh, quantum physics is the first uh, best news that science has given to spiritual traditions, which raises us the hope that um, uh, we can now take an integrated approach to everything. Before, the idea was that the spiritual worldview is different, uh, scientific worldview is different, perhaps some sort of instrumentalism is all we can do. Science is for studying the world, spirituality is for studying things which are beyond the world, supernatural, that's the way it's going to be. Quantum physics, very surprisingly, with the interpretation that I have given it, which is the only interpretation that removes paradoxes. Um, surprisingly, it was a surprise to me, it's a surprise to everybody, that uh, consciousness, which is um, very peculiar because it's not an object, it's also a subject. Uh, you cannot make a model for the subject from objects. So even from a scientific point of view, scientific materialism is limited. Um, it really cannot apply to psychology, cannot apply to even biology, certainly cannot apply to any human affair because we are special, we have experiences. This matter cannot happen. So from that, to come to a science that puts subject, consciousness, all these things squarely in the middle of our science, this is an amazing development. It's so sad that people get prejudiced, and therefore the scientists cannot appreciate that because they have so much dogma about this. Everything is matter philosophy, everything got to be mathematical, everything got to be understood on the basis of elementary particles, that they cannot open their mind to this fantastic new development. But spiritual traditions are, of course, delighted. Um, some um, medical uh, practitioners are delighted because it, uh, these approachables want to integrate medicine. Psychologists are delighted because this food turned personal psychology on the map. Um, so there are some progress in the thawing of the um, scientific mindset, but it's only mainly the soft science. The hard scientists still talk about very dogmatically how can this be why should we trust this? Right. And it, it's, it's interesting that it's interesting that in your book you point out that, you know, we moved from historically this time when, um, you know, science had to kind of liberate, liberate itself from the dogma of religion. And then and then we've moved into this time where now actually you know, for this, for the scientific method to explore the integration of, 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 you know, quantum physics and spirituality, we have to be relieved from the dogma of a certain scientific paradigm, which is very interesting that it's, it's sort of been flipped, hasn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It used to be that religion is the dogma and religion does have dogma, yeah. very specific dogma. Religion started with the idea that consciousness is the ground of being. 
and mystics talk like that. But you know, religions like Christianity is not really the right. following of mystics like Jesus's idea. It follows more of the religious idea of Saint Paul, which is uh, already full of dogma. And this scientists object to correctly. The uh, Old Testament book of Genesis for evolution just cannot possibly be right in view of the scientific data. And scientists are right to refute that. And certainly, uh, science has done a very good job of propagating the idea of evolution, which is the truth, which is new science is capturing it. And without it, we really could not understand uh, the integration of science and spirituality, how that can proceed, because it proceeds as a part of the evolution. We evolve in, in stages. Initially, we were uh, spiritual, then we become religious dogma, then science arose and demolished some of the religious dogma, and then only we are ready for integration with the help of quantum physics we are doing it. Yes. So uh, I want to talk about some of the key features of quantum physics, uh, the principles of quantum physics, quantum physics, and how they're relevant, um, you know, to this kind of spiritual worldview that you're suggesting. And you know, one of them, of course, is the uh, is the role of the observer, right? This is sort of what scientific materialism can't hold space for: is the role of the observer and the significance of the observer. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and and why that is pertinent to um, you know some of the Eastern traditions, or why that's relevant to some of the perspective of some of the Eastern traditions? Actually, let's go back one step, okay? Because that will help everybody. Uh, quantum physics from the beginning. Um, quantum equations of movement, and um, this is the way quantum physics is. It starts with mathematics. It is mathematical. And it says a very uh, interesting thing and very important thing that physicists from the beginning uh, have been troubled by. It says squarely that all objects, material objects and objects of energy, matter and energy, all objects are waves in some way. Initially, there was a lot of effort put into what kind of waves are there. Because these waves, when try to observe, we find them as particles. Waves are spread out, particles are localized. How is it possible that the same object belong to waves or particles depending on our observations? So this caused a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, assumptions were made, and only uh, eventually people started admitting that there must be a separate domain of reality in which these waves are. There are waves of possibility. They are not waves in space and time. There is no paradox of wave-particle duality. But of course, popular expositions uh, you read or even textbooks you read, they will still present it as a paradox. They will still present it as, as if the waves and particles both are in space and time. This is, has been a problem. So as soon as you have uh, acknowledged that there is a domain outside of space and time, you're already making connection with what the spiritual tradition said. Yeah. Modern science has called this outside domain supernature. Quantum physics is saying, wait, hold on. There is such a domain that we have to assume because quantum ob uh, objects are waves that cannot reside in space and time. They're waves of possibility that become objects 
of actuality only when we observe them. And there is your connection with the observer. What is an observation? Only when you observe them as a human observer who has a self separate from the objects that he or she observes. Mm. You see how the concept of self is being introduced? Without it, we cannot define a quantum measurement. And then all hell breaks loose. And this is what was holding up the uh, development or understanding of quantum paradoxes. In 1935, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, Swiss scientists, proved a very wonderful thing mathematically, that if two possibility objects interact, they become, what they said, correlated, a state of entanglement in which they can communicate instantly without signal. This communication without signal was called non-locality. Einstein objected, nothing can communicate instantly, he said. This communication must proceed with signals, and that has a speed limit, speed of light. So instant communication is impossible. However, people continued, you know, scientists have uh, perseverance. So they continued, continued, continued. Ultimately, this idea was verified experimentally in 1982. And that's when really quantum physics began to be understood. Mm. So to add this idea that there is non-local communication possible, instant communication, then one thing that stands out to people who already have been dabbling with spirituality, what stands out is spiritual traditions always talk about unity. Now think about this, if, one, if you and I communicate instantly, aren't we part of the unity? You can only communicate instantly with yourself, no other way. So these two objects are really forming a unity. Hmm. They are objects of potentiality, so the unity is a potential unity. Nevertheless, it's unity. So this domain of potentiality is a domain of potential unity as well. Hmm. And what does that mean? Then it becomes much easier because this is how spiritual traditions talk about. They say, yes, we start with the unity, consciousness is one and only, only with his objects, and then God has a whimsy or God wants to see himself separate from himself and therefore something happens. It's in Vedanta, this process is called Maya. Mm-hmm. Some things happen and God appears split into a subject and an object. Yes, yes. And saying exactly this, because remember, without a uh, self, we cannot uh, discern quantum measurement. So quantum physics is now saying the same thing. We start as a unity, experimentally verified, and in a measurement, it becomes a subject looking at an object. What the conventional measurement uh, solutions that you that some scientific materialists tout, like many world theory and all that, when you examine it, they fall short because they cannot explain the subject. They only focus on the object, they ignore the subject. But quantum measurement, von Neumann first said this, I did not even originate that idea, that quantum measurement must involve the subject. Without the subject, you cannot define it because uh, all objects are possibilities. How can possibility measure a possibility? Possibility measuring a possibility is not possible. <laughs> Think about it and you'll realize. Yeah. It's just not. So I want to back up. 
I want to back up a little bit and ask you a couple que- follow up questions to um, a couple of these concepts. One being um, the observer and the and the quantum entanglement, because I I think this is a simplistic interpretation, but seems like sometimes this is common, and so I want to kind of tease it out with you. Which is, you know, is to say that um, something is a wave prior to my observing it. Is that to imply that behind me right now? You know, the 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 wall is simply a possibility as a wave and that when I turn to look at it, I'm actually seeing it as a particle. Or is that too much of an ego centered notion of this kind of concept of the observer? Yeah, we all do that because, you know, we um, have difficulty in thinking of ourselves. What we are thinking of is called dualism in philosophy. Yeah, we are all thinking of the world is happening and I'm watching it uh, from up here as a dual world. That thinking, science has uh, gotten rid of a long time ago by uh, pointing out that any interaction would require a signal, but no signal ever gets out of the physical world. This is called the law of conservation of energy. There is so much verification of this law in every transaction that no possible way of ignoring it. Now, quantum uh, non-locality is given a way out and we must accept that because that is, it is experimentally verified. And now we don't need dual, dualism. Uh, the same thing, uh, the unity can be included by just saying that, well, there is non-local communication. What is the distinction between the domain of potentiality and this domain? The distinction is that in that domain, instant communication is possible. In this domain, communication must be local, must proceed through a signal. So we have clear definition of everything, but also the clear understanding that we have to have another domain that becomes this domain. It's not really separate. The separate uh, two realities, dualism, has that kind of thinking has to be given up. So what's the case? And there is something here that we have to watch. And this is why um, uh, my uh, is a little bit, uh, becomes a little bit difficult to understand. One additional um, uh, proposition has to be made. Uh, a paradox has to be solved, which is that where are you? You don't exist. You are also possibility. The brain is also a possibility. So we have to see that. We have to see that the brain becoming observer, self, and the object, electron, or any other object becoming a manifest particle or localized object, This process has a uh, paradox because uh, subject looking at the object, how can that happen? Subject wasn't there before. They are spontaneously arising simultaneously. So this has to be proven. What then is happening is that there is this brain in potentiality and the object in potentiality. The quantum measurement is spontaneously collapsing both the brain and the object in the process, consciousness is identifying with the brain. Why is consciousness identifying with the brain? This is where the reader has to put some brain power because brain has a special apparatus in it we call tangled hierarchy. Mm -hmm. That captures consciousness, that enables consciousness to identify with the brain. Mm -hmm. We should not go into too much discussion of this because this issue insists (laughs) on <laughs> yeah, it's some dense, it's some dense stuff, but I think you know if I understand uh, a little bit of what you're saying, it 
the 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 idea that that I that something would not be manifest simply because I'm not looking at it is is a little bit of a misunderstanding because it seems like the the quantum collapse that that creates or manifests both the the separate subject and the object happen simultaneously. So it's not as if you know I'm when I don't look at the street outside it doesn't exist, but it already has existed because I'm already a subject. Correct? Um, not quite that way. If that even a bit subtlety is even there. In between my looking, the object does disappear. Okay. So object and subject are always appearing together. Quantum physics is very specific about this. And part of it is accepted by everybody, which is that there is no object ever. Everything remains in potentiality unless it's somebody observed. looks at it. Yeah. Then only there is experience. Okay. So um, uh, some of these things people do accept because some of these things are without any question that the object does not exist without an observation, without somebody experiencing it. But then where the materialists fall short and they won't just address it, okay, but where is that observation? Where is that observer come, coming from? It's obviously associated with the brain, but how does it arise in the brain? They say, well, brain has consciousness somehow. But of course, the objects cannot make a subject. So brain cannot have consciousness in that way. They just don't think it through. Yeah. It's simple, but when in dogma, when you accept a dogma that no, everything has to be matter, then you have a problem. Yeah. Because you have the object to start with, you cannot include the subject in your worldview. Somehow you have to denigrate the subject. Somehow you have to say, no, there is no free will. There is nothing that the subject can do. It's just an ornamental phenomena. We don't understand it, but we don't need to understand it because it does not affect the causal world. Mm -hmm. And that is wrong view. It does affect the causal world every day. It's affecting the causal world. Otherwise, in America, why are we impeaching Donald Trump? It's fine. It's all uh, completely unnecessary. Uh, I mean, no uh, effect of it uh, phenomenon. It's all one mystical world illusion, then why do we bother about it? We bother because it does matter. What people do does matter. Yeah, yeah. So um, so then just to then ask about, because we've mentioned this concept of quantum collapse, that is specifically referring to the process by means of which the potential becomes the actual. Is that correct? correct. Okay. So that is quite any... Quantum collapse is referring both referring both to the collapse into my individuality as subject and also to the objective world from that sort of domain of potentiality that is where the sort of non separateness lives, so to speak. Correct. Okay. And how I am that determines my choice. So even the um, e what we call ego in spiritual tradition, spiritual yes. tradition make this different, make this mistake from the other side. They, on the other hand, tend to say that, well, everything is decided by that unity consciousness. That is not true either. What the ego decides is extremely important. Ego has two decisions to make. One is that I will cut off from that unity consciousness and do everything, let everything be at this ego level. Then, yes, indeed, conditioning is running us and consciousness is not needed. This point of view actually was very similar to the scientific materialist point of view, causing a huge confusion. So, um, but that point of view is not right. Why? Because we also 
can become creative. We can say no to egoic actions mm -hmm. and rise above the fray. And we do constantly. Otherwise, changes would never happen. Yeah. So what is, uh, the, you've mentioned this concept of quantum entanglement, and I'm, I'm not quite sure I totally understand it yet. Would you uh, give us an, uh, <laughs> a, a boiled down version of that um, concept and how it fits into what we're talking about? To understand um, quantum non-locality is to uh, think of an experience. The common experience is telepathy. This is so common. Everyone, I'm sure, has experience the peculiar sensations you get when you are thinking of someone and you get a telephone call for yeah, that time. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing happens often, synchronicity happens often. Um, and if you want to be very technical, uh, very easy to perpetrate a distant viewing uh, experience. Uh, you can just sit in a group and uh, the group leader only knows what's in a box and the group leader starts thinking about it, and every other person around the group leader starts drawing what he or she is thinking, and it's amazing how people... Uh, it has to be... You have to take about five or ten minutes to do it, because the first impulses of drawing will not be right. But then you start doing better and better. Mm. And um, the, at the end, you look at everything, you look at all the attempts that you have made, and indeed you find that you have settled down to a picture which is remarkably correct with the uh, object in the box. Wow. So distant viewing is the official proof of uh, mental calibration. This has been done so well, you know, by Defense Department uh, uh, contracts, so government approved research in other <laughs> And, and, and indeed, both in Russia and the and America and during the Cold War, spend a lot of time about telepathic finding out what the enemy is doing. And this is possible to some extent. Yeah, it's, I think that's that's a fascinating fact that the government actually paid for this kind of research because they saw it as, you know, obviously benefiting them um, mm -hmm. in their own, you know less than admirable efforts. <laughs> um, so I have one more conceptual question and then I want to switch to more about, you know, kind of how we should live in accordance with all of this, what we're talking about. Um, but the one, the one term that you bring up a lot in your book, the Everything Answer book, which I enjoyed reading, um, is downward causation. So I'm curious, what is downward causation and how does it differ from, you know, the causation of, for example, scientific materialism? It is very, very important to think of downward causation and understand it, how radical this concept is. Because the uh, world, as materialists think of it, only has one kind of causation, which is the causation of matter interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. This is called upward causation because ultimately elementary particles do all this interacting, everything is apparent interaction. interaction. There is no causality in genes, there is no causality in the brain. It's all elementary particles, really creating all these conglomerates, and that's the only interaction, upward causation. And then uh, certain things follow. For example, one thing that materialists doubt very much against telepathy is saying that, okay, we have non-locality, but quantum non-locality cannot send messages, which has to have information which requires two measurements, but you can do only a quantum measurement only 
between correlated objects only once. If you measure them, they become uncorrelated. You cannot measure them again. So they say, how are you going to send a message? You cannot send a message, which requires uh, information. Quantum physics has a uh, very simple answer to this kind of thing. And um, the answer, of course, is that we have uh, downward position in addition to upward position. And we have situations where you can use the system again and again, such as the brain. It's not a system like electron where you can measure only once, but with the brain you can measure again and again and again. Um, so, and the, then the idea of downward position takes away all the mathematics, validity of all the mathematics that went into proving that information cannot be transferred from one object to another using non-locality. Information can transfer. On top of it, this has been verified. We have verified now that yes, a signal can be sent from a brain to another brain if the two brains meditate together uh, with the intention that they will communicate directly. So both experimentally verified and indeed they're sending an information because if you are meditating and your brain is connected with a EEG machine showing that yes, you are meditating, you have steady electrical potential if you uh, are shown an object like a light, um, indeed your EEG will show it. The other person is just meditating with you in a Faraday cage uh, 50 feet away. Faraday cage means no electromagnetic wave can, from you to him can go. Hmm. So, and yet the brain is receiving the signal uh, that's proving how, because the EEG machine connected to that brain also is showing a very similar potential as your brain is showing. Mm. So there's no question that information is being sent from one to the other. Because by seeing that there is a transfer potential in his brain, we can immediately get the information that you are meditating and you are, you are shown a light signal which this person has not seen. And yet there is an effect of seeing the light signal in this person's brain. By looking at that, I can tell that you are doing something. So this is information uh, sending. So we now have proven in the laboratory and in theory, with the help of the concept of downward causation, that there is causation outside of material causation. And look at this, how, how wonderful it is, because downward causation is, consists of what? It consists of choosing among all the specific facets of potentiality one particular one which becomes actuality. Mm. So I have a whole bunch of things to choose from. Like I like all kinds of flavors of ice cream, but when I go to the ice cream shop, I'll probably just buy one. So that kind of choice is what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Or free choice in the case of creativity where we have old stuff, many, many, many old stuff to choose. We also have new stuff. And I choose the new. Mm. That's a creative choice. So in both kinds of things, um, it gives us a dimension now where we can truly say that the adage human beings cannot change is false. Human beings can change, provided, of course, they have to go through the rigor of creativity. Creativity involves creative process and that requires some doing, some understanding, some meditation, some being as well. It's, it's not easy.
So I want to ask a question to maybe illuminate this with regards to, um, you know, some of the Eastern teachings. So we we know of sort of the consideration of the Vedas and how the Rishis had sort of, you know, in a sense, downloaded this wisdom from, you know, the capital V Veda or that sort of wisdom that is the ground of everything. So from a quantum perspective, um, your approach to quantum physics, is this essentially that that process whereby the rishis sort of downloaded this wisdom was that a collapse from quantum potentiality quantum consciousness into manifestation in actuality via the sort of um uh downward causation kind of movement yes it is a a choice of the creative idea Mm. there was old ideas about uh how things work dualism and this which is recognize that well it's not dualism how did they recognize it by creating what we now call creative insight yeah creativity creative process is now um, quite easily understood now with the help of quantum science um, and the understanding is that there are all kinds of potentialities that uh, we produce initially by just thinking and then allowing them to process unconsciously this part is called being, doing nothing, preparation and then doing nothing. And this combination, preparation and doing nothing, I call it do-be-do-be-do. <laughs> so this is where the meditation comes in. So yeah. for being, to meditate. For doing, you can do uh, focused thinking. But for being, you have to meditate. You have to learn that because we normally in our ego state, our mind just refuses to be still, yes. if you to slow down. Yeah. So meditation does not produce entirely stillness. You cannot still be still for very long, but if you do it, then you find that the mind is slow. And that slowness is enough, because in between two thoughts, there is a gap. And that gap is all you need. That's the unconscious processing. Mm, yes. So then this doobie-doobie-do happens quite naturally in the way that you live. Yeah. And that's all the difference. So a person who does doobie-doobie-doo during the um, regular living will have naturally, if they have a focus on a problem, they're all naturally solving the problem. And it's amazing how people can live because they're, you know, ordinary people get bugged about a problem, they get anxious. But if you accept this doobie-doobie lifestyle, you don't need to get anxious because you know that your lifestyle automatically will produce a solution sooner or later. And you learn to be a little resilient, a little patient, um, and it happens. So um, it's a, it's a just a better way to live. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're saying this. It's a great segue into our the next kind of portion of our conversation. Um, because, of course, I, perhaps everybody who's listening is observing that our contemporary culture is really more about do, 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 rather than do, be, do, be, do. So, uh, um, so, you know, in this question, this question that I now have, which is sort of how do we actually live according to the quantum worldview? Because, you know, you've just 
outlined a lot of really fascinating, very dense information about the quantum theory. Um, but, you know, the, the follow-up question, of course, for most people will be, you know, so what? How do I implement this? How do I actually change the way I'm living right now so that I can accord myself to this, you know, quantum worldview? So I'm hearing a little bit, you know, that meditation's a good thing. <laughs> so, but what else, how else might we sort of make this um, how else might we allow quantum theory to inform the way that we live today? Uh, well, the, of course, the creativity is the creativity and meditation is uh, the part of that creative process. Ultimately, you have to engage that. But initially, the other uh, things play a lot of role. For example, today we have become very information-oriented. And information really makes us into machines because you are not thinking about meaning. What is the meaning of this information for me? Like um, there are listeners here. Some of them are meditators. They will try to understand what we are saying. Some of them will be listening with, you know, I appreciate his listeners too. I'm not pejorating against anybody because everybody has to be regarded as very, very uh, uh, important people struggling trying to make their lives better, happier. So that being said, though, people tend to, because they grow up from this information culture, people tend to listen to something as just getting the information. Amit and Jacob are talking about stuff about quantum. Oh, hey, they will even propagate this event. But uh, that's just propagating it as information. If you try to understand it, then it becomes a little more work. And this is where I try to inspire these people who are listeners to the information gathering and propagating very useful things for society as a whole. But they themselves could do much better if they took it a bit seriously and see what does it mean to me if I want to practice quantum lifestyle, do we do we do? What does happen to me? Does my life get better or worse? This cannot be understood without that putting that effort. Yeah. Okay, what has happened to me if I do 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 instead of do do? That basic question is all we need our society in America to yeah. ask. Yeah. Americans are very good. Once they learn something is important, they will do it. They are very good at that. They will be the best in the world doing that. No doubt about it in my mind. But this basic understanding requires a change from that information mindset that all I need is the information and then I can talk to my friends, hey, look, these funny guys talk about dooby dooby do that fancy the jingle that is in a song and all this stuff, this is funny. But <laughs> no, the question I wanted to ask is not to be amused, but to ask yourself the question, okay, what would happen to me if I did dooby dooby do? become creative and that would be an enormous break from the idea that are constantly sold to you that you cannot change this is the one defect of our society one defect of the culture everybody is constantly throwing the idea oh nobody changes everybody is pretending this is why we have political correctness you cannot possibly get to the racism so at least you pretend that you're not a racist you never say the n-word and stuff like that no we don't want to live that way we can change. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. So it's, it's, and it seems like you're suggesting that if once you ask the question, then you really don't have to believe it's true. You just have to do the experiment in your life of actually 
trying doobie dooby doo and then you'll see very clearly the effects that it has in terms of your creativity, your sense of clarity and ease and all of the rest of it. So Amit, you talk in your book a lot about archetypes and about living according to them. And and you, I, I, I've, of course, I've read a lot about archetypes and I know a bit about it, but I feel like your, your approach to it is kind of quite interesting. You talk a lot about living according to them, sort of almost as if like, your life sort of each each individual life sort of revolves around one or two archetypes and being devoted to them in a certain kind of way. So can you talk a little bit about that? What are the main archetypes and what this sort of lifestyle of living according to an archetype looks like? Yes, and I, I must also say that uh, even before me, uh, at least two people, Sri Aurobindo in India and Carl Jung in the West, have uh, given archetypes a lot of importance. And this is the shift of the worldview that we need. Not only we are saying that um, meaning is more important than information, we are also saying that the best meanings comes to us with the archetypes. And, and, and in fact, something better happens when you think about the archetypes. Archetypes can be represented both in meaning and also feelings. So feelings come in into our picture, and that is a very important part. Because if you want to be sure that there is an archetype indeed, and you are having a creative experience. Best way to be sure of that is to feel energy in your stomach area, gut feeling. That gut feeling, although people sometimes joke about it, is no joke. It is the guarantee. If you have a gut feeling, then it's guaranteed that the intuition or the thought that you have has some truth value. There's some truth in it, and you have to follow it up. And when you have creative insight, the gut feeling tells you without any doubt that this is true. And this is what, you know, in my life, I have so much opposition ever since 1989 about this concept, but it never has bothered me. Because what I discovered gave me that gut feeling, the complete certainty that this is true. Hmm. And every, every objection is always have met with solutions. And of course, objections are very important because it makes you think more and more. So in that way, intuitions and um, what we intuit, those objects, archetypes, they are very important in our life. We have nine of them, the important ones. I'll go through the ones that as we go through them in our life. Uh, the first one is of tremendous concern to our security, mm -hmm. abundance. Everybody uh, sooner or later has to go through that phase of looking for abundance, security. We need that. Next is power. Power to bring things in my life. That power archetype is very important. So these are the two basic archetypes. But these basic archetypes, if you do it without you know, further archetypal investigation, they can also produce even more ego. Look at Donald Trump. He is actually quite a creative person. He used to be. He is not uh, an ordinary person. You know that. He is a brilliant person. And he has a lot of smartness. But what uh, he decided to do is to stay in that just within that me. That me became the object. And he became practically a megalomaniac, egocentric, almost like a psychopath. I don't know how much psychopath we can call him technically, but there is a, some hundred There are some features. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you have that. 
So then to get out of them, what you go with the next level of archetypes, those are called love and goodness. Jesus talked about goodness a lot, love a lot, mystics do. The next level are three more archetypes, truth, beauty, and justice. They are more abstract, and they take really somewhat of an advanced mind. Scientists used to have that. Scientists are the explorer of truth. Spiritual teachers, they are also explorer of truth. So truth is a very important exploration, and that's what's really turning inward, turning towards these archetypes. Well, that's where it really begins. You know, love is both personal and transpersonal. Love between two uh, people who are in an intimate relationship is very personal. It has a personal side. It can also be transpersonal when I try to love everyone in my vicinity or humanity as a whole. Then it becomes transpersonal. Then it's very conducive to spirituality. But when you talk about these three, truth, beauty, justice, then it really makes you transpersonal. And then the final two are extremely transpersonal. One is called wholeness. To see that there is really no dichotomy, the usual dichotomies, beauty, ugly, truth, false, they're false dichotomies. False is not important as important as truth. When we transcend both true and false, when I am able to take your truth and my truth, Initially, your truth will seem to be false in me. My truth is the right one. When, only when I can transcend this dichotomy between your truth and my truth, only when I give you value, where is your truth coming from? It's coming from a difference. It's coming from fear. I have to recognize that. I cannot just say, oh, you were wrong. You know, this is where political parties do. You're just wrong. No, that's not the way to approach it. You have to approach it with compassion. You are wrong, there is a reason for it. You are wrong because you are threatened by me, because you are afraid that I'll do things. If my truth is the right one and you accept it, then I'll impose things on you that you cannot possibly handle, that you really think will destroy the country. And this is why you make a, such a different model of truth that I find that abhorrent. So the approach is always I versus you, and the approach has to be I and you. When that happens, then we can transcend the dichotomies, and that's what the wholeness archetype is about. It's very important that our political uh, leaders today understood this a bit, because this understanding is what is lacking, what we have two divided parties. Yeah, wow. So that's the one that mystics do. That's the who am I and all Sorry, that. which one is it? I think I've talked over you. Which one is it? The last one? The last one is the self archetype. The capital Who, S self. Yeah. Like self-realization. Self-realization. Mm. That's the one that mystics do. Yes. So, you know, I want to talk about a couple th uh, things that are sort of popular topics right now. And, 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 and you actually brought it up in your book, so I feel like it's fair. Fair game. <laughs> Everybody is talking about, you know, manifesting their own reality these days. And a lot of it boils down to a fairly ridiculous assertion, at least from my perspective, that you can manifest really anything you want, which is usually just from the perspective of your own ego, right? And um, you have a you outline a different approach that doesn't kind of end up boiling it down to what we see in, for example, The Secret, the book The Secret. Um, so can you talk about this? You know, to what degree can we 
manifest our reality? I mean, you've already been talking about it. Um, and to and and to what extent is this notion of um, manifesting reality that we see in the secret a little bit sort of superficial? Yeah, well, the, the secret has some good elements in it. And I want to make that clear that it is not wrong per se. Right. The secret does emphasize it is important to intend. Secret does emphasize that important to sit, slow down. Those are very important part of the creative process. But the secret, because it wants, it wants to touch a popular nerve, that's when secret betrays us. It does not give us the whole secret. It gives the beginning of the secret. But, you know, I tell you, uh, Jacob, it is really true that if you just did those two things, eventually you will discover the other things that are necessary for manifestation. All creativity begins with the power of intention. We've got to develop that. Where uh, we all tend to fail is where we tend to, you know, this is the style of today. I cannot even criticize it because we all want to be popular. We all want to spread our work so that we become famous so that the, our words mean something. And in uh, doing that, we compromise. People, com I send a book to a publisher. Publishers are very reluctant to publish something which is difficult to understand. Mm. Why do they do that? They want to sell. Yeah. And of course, cannot even blame. This is the culture of selling or you are not be able to survive. Um, so this compromise that has happened from the pressure from the economic side has produced a huge uh, difficulty. If they made a movie which should produce all the um, difficulties, honestly, of a creative process, would the movie sell? Would, would it become such a bestseller? And so, you know, we have to give them some leeway about that. It's not all to make fun. They did have a good idea. Some good people contributed to it. Having said all that, so what is missing? What is missing is that there are other steps. Intention is important, but so it is also that your movements that you're proposing are consonant with the overall purposive movement of consciousness. Because what you're trying to do is to get consciousness on your side. If you uh, desire from the ego, nothing happens. Everybody should know that. I desire something, okay? I desire that I get million dollars in my bank. Has anybody able to get even one dollar in one's bank just by desiring, intending? We constantly. No, we have to put some force behind it. We have to prepare, we have to earn the money, and you know, so we have to get a degree, then I get a better job, okay, my intention pays off. But you see, this in between, we have to work. And this is the part that Sitter doesn't talk about, that every intention is followed up by some work, and that's when we make the intention come true. These people making intentions come to, they are constantly making intentions come to. And are they doing anything for it? Yes, they are doing anything for it. To underweight the doing is a big, big mistake. We have to do. But of course, then Secret makes a very good point that we also have to be, just sit down. Yeah. Do. Yeah. But to omit to do and only to tell sit down is a disaster. Nothing will happen if you don't do. Doobie, doobie, doobie. Doobie, doobie, I know. I love this. Um, so, you know, I, I love what you're saying. And I think you sort of, you did kind of say this in your book, which is um, what you're essentially saying now, which is that the sequence between kind of, you know, my thought about something and a manifestation, it might be a long road, right? So I sit, I, 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 
I be, right? I sit in meditation. I have this incredible idea that comes up of a community on Mars that, you know, needs certain features to get there. It's not going to manifest at my own thought, but the process or the sequence of engagement that will bring us to a place where potentially in 100, 200 years, that community could live on Mars is more, you know, the sort of reality of, 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 of manifesting your own reality. It's just that sometimes there's a bit of a sequence of time and doing in between, right? Exactly. Yeah. That should be understood. And once we understand that, and the other two additional parts that I have to add is, of course, you brought in the archetype. I talked about the purpose of consciousness. So consciousness has a hidden agenda in our using, you know, using consciousness to get our creative process going. If you want your intention to be manifest, and then if you want to help out that totality of consciousness, then you better listen. Mm -hmm. What you have to do is to serve the purpose of that consciousness. The purpose of that consciousness is not to serve your ego, is not to serve your abuse of power, is not to serve your search for money, fame, and all this stuff. It's only one thing. Consciousness wants those archetypes to take hold of us Consciousness want to see how far the human being can transform itself and reach out to the universe by transforming. This is the uh, intention of consciousness. If our intention goes along with the intention of consciousness, they will have a much, much better chance of manifesting because we are trying to use the power of consciousness. We can, of course, try to use just the social aspects. Like I said, you can take a job, earn money, and get what you intended. Fine, we do that all the time. And for that, we don't need the creative aspects of consciousness, creative power, downward position by consciousness. But when we are trying to be uh, loving, when we are trying to be truthful, when we are trying to develop a fair society where all those isms, sexism, racism, homophobia, they disappear. If we want that kind of thing, then we have to engage the power of consciousness behind us. We cannot do it by ego because our ego itself is culprit. I am myself culprit of when it comes to my selfish interest, can I give in to um, my partner of the opposite sex? No, I, I enormous difficulty doing it, unless I have become creative and transformed. Mm. So for those things, we really have to understand that to get into downward causation, we have to go along the intention of divine and uh, the way to do it is to align ourselves in exploration of the archetypes. Mm. If we are exploring archetypes, there is always the divine is ready to help us. But if we just think about it, you know, I long time ago, in 1973, I saw a um, picture in uh, a, a cartoon in Playboy magazine. And the cartoon was, at that time, a book called The Joy of Sex was very popular. The cartoon was, a guy is sitting in, um, in the bed and reading Joy of Sex, and beside him, his girlfriend is doing things that obviously says she wants some action. And this guy, cut it out, don't you see I'm reading? And that's the tendency for us when we want to manifest, we want to be spiritual, we want to change. That's our objective. We read about it, we hear, hear lectures, but we don't want to do anything about it. Yeah. The, Doing divine is waiting for us, really, to be investigated. These archetypes are waiting for us. Mm. That's another discovery that we have made. You know, um, these archetypes really are very friendly. Mm. Uh, they are very anxious for us to 
um, investigate them. You know, they, 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 we are always ready for external stimuli. But these archetypes are really internal stimuli directly from consciousness coming to us, constantly telling us that, look, there is more to it in your life than what you're doing. Listen to us, listen to us. You know, this is called attractor principle. Archetypes are attracted to us. But only if they do attention, then they will settle in our life. Wow, I love that. I love that that statement. The divine is waiting for us, and the archetypes are waiting for us. I love that. So this has been a wonderful conversation, Ahmed. I have one more question um, before we uh, end our delightful conversation, and that is, um, you know, you did this. Um, you were in this film on quantum activism, um, and and so I, I'm curious. Obviously, I feel like we've sort of been talking about. Um, becoming this but haven't directly stated it which is becoming a quantum activist so i'm curious what a quantum activist is and how does one who's listening who's inspired by what we're saying become one well becoming one is just making a resolution to uh, adopt the quantum lifestyle and adopt the life of transformation you will do it for you once you get into that lifestyle you cannot miss so getting into it is very easy now, what you do, the basic principle of activism is to try to change the world. And this is very commendable by itself, no question about it. But the basic stuff of life that we are talking about, transformation, you cannot inspire somebody to transform if you were not transformed. If you were just pretending, politically correct, and all you can teach then is to impose the other political correctness on another person. But the position will never make the person happy because he or she knows that, look, the stuff remains in my mind. Why can't I express it? It's sort of coercing the people to talk in a certain way and taking away their freedom. But you are doing the same thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So how can you object to the other doing the same thing? It doesn't work. So quantum activism starts from an authentic activism. As you change what you want to see in the world, you be that change. This is also what Gandhi said, be yep. the change you want to see. And this is this is quantum activism. Gandhi was a quantum activist, uh, prime example of quantum activist. When I say quantum activist, this is the first thing I did. I um, started, as I saw that spirituality and science are the same thing, I started spiritual investigation. This is why I call myself a spiritual practitioner. Very important part of me. Some people call me mystical physicist, but so be it. That doesn't bother me. But if I did not investigate spirituality and made spirituality the priority of my life, I, how could I ever teach spirituality? Yeah. This hypocrisy of the modern thinking, modern living, is the most harmful thing that goes against our transformation. And this is why we cannot change and then we say, nobody can change. We impose that on others, but people are changing all over. You know, um, I don't know if you have read this book, but Goldman and uh, Davidson, two very important consciousness researchers, they uh, wrote a book which they have shown data that people who meditate for a long period of time, their brain waves change. Yeah. So there is just no doubt uh, from neuroscience data, from physics data, from transport potential data, and many other pieces of data in which I can get into. Of course, as space, this famous non-locality experiment. There's no doubt about it. It's not just theory. 
we, we say quantum metaphysics is experimental metaphysics. And of course, it is also experiential metaphysics. The way that wishes did discover all these things, they experienced it. All this depends on this fundamental thing that we become serious and we change the change that we are proposing. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. So, Amit, this has been a fabulous conversation, and um, I just wanted to give you an opportunity before we close to mention anything that you're doing, anything that's coming up. Of course, I want to mention again um, the book, uh, The Everything Answer Book, How Quantum Science Explains Love, Death, and the Meaning of Life, um, which is your latest book and can be found, of course, at any um, online retailer. Um, so is there anything coming up? And then if you'd like to share your website where people can find more information about you. Yes, Jacob, thank you for giving me this opportunity. The biggest thing that is happening in my life right now is that um, my friends and I have been able to establish a university mm. of transformation in India, Joypur, India. It's called Quantum Activism Vishalayam. Vishalayam means... Um, uh, um, world, uh, the uh, home of the world. So we expect international people to come and uh, run transformation. And we are giving masters and PhD in quantum science of uh, health, prosperity, and happiness in conjunction with a government-affiliated university called University of Technology in Georgia. Every information, all information is in the website, my website, amitgoswami.org, A-M-I-T-G-O-S-W-A-M-I.org. So please look up that if you are interested in transformation. This is this kind of education is nothing ever that happened in the world. People have come close, but uh, using a uh, integration of science and spirituality, and the goal is not only technological and uh, conceptual ideas about consciousness, how to apply it, but goal also is how to apply it in your own life. So we have a lot of courses on inner transformation, meditation, and other processes that help us transform. Wow, that's an incredibly an inspiring project and definitely resonates with um, what we're trying to do at Embodied Philosophy, but in an online way. So thank you for, for that wonderful work. Um, it's been such a pleasure, Amit, and I uh, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.